guys, before we jump into the review, I want to bring to your attention that this very helpful review is brought to you by Professor Chekhov for Macroeconomics. And while Professor Chekhov does do a very very comprehensive review of Macroeconomics, please do know that he has emphasized certain topics that he wants his own students to know and leaving out topics that, that um, your macroeconomics teacher might want you to know. So as always, uh, always discrepancy between classes, so to be safe, please consult your own teachers for any questions and concerns regarding the exam as well as exam materials. Additionally, Professor Chekhov do say that the exam is open book and you should prepare yourself a formula sheet. However, please consult your own professors to make sure that you are using the authorized materials. Again, with those stuff out of the way, uh, enjoy your Crimean podcast. Well, I guess, first of all, thank you for, for Professor Chekhov to, uh, for helping the students and helping us in providing this podcast, uh, making this available. So I guess first we'll just start off by going over the major topics that will be on the final for macroeconomics. Uh, the, the final exam will include the topics which, are, were, which were studied towards the end of the um, of the semester, most of all, the most difficult topic is the aggregate demand, aggregate supply model, and how the government and the central bank can influence the economy. So the model, ADAS model, this model, the graph, includes pretty much everything we studied. Almost everything, almost all chapters are in that model. So unfortunately, it is a difficult topic because it includes everything. And to make things worse, uh, this model comes from two economic schools. So students have to be familiar with not one, but two economic schools. So they have to be smarter than economists who can belong to one school or another, but your students, you're supposed to be more intelligent than uh, economists. Um, and this model leads to another topic, how can the government uh, and the central bank fix an economy and should they? Yeah, that, I guess that was the aggregate model uh, demand and supply. And so I guess we should first start off with uh, the econo- uh, the schools of economic thoughts, the two schools of economic thoughts, because from what I remember, it should be the neoclassical school of liberal uh, economic thought and uh, the Keynesian school of economic thought. So, uh, Professor Chekhov, why don't you explain and uh, elaborate a bit on what are, are the main ideas of those two schools of economic thought and why are they important for societies in general? Yes, um, great question. For about 200 years, uh, all economics was classical economic school, and they focused on the long run. If um, you need to find one word, two words, to describe classical economic school, it's the long run. The long run. They focused on the economy over long, long periods of time, 10 years and more. And they disliked the government. So they believe that in the long run, so over 10 years and more, an economy always self-corrects. An economy is a wonderful self-correcting, self-healing mechanism. So if an economy self-corrects, if economy has this magical 
property or fixing its own problems. Then we don't need a government. The government is uh, corrupt bureaucrats who usually make things worse. So the classical economic school was against the government and the classical economists would argue that we should let markets do the job. Let the economies fix themselves. But then uh, in the early 20th century, there was a Great Depression, which was so long and severe that classical economic school didn't fit anymore. People wanted advice. People wanted some precise, concrete, specific suggestions. What to do? How to survive that horrible uh, economic crisis? Hence, John Maynard Keynes came to life. And he said that, no, the short run is important. Yes, maybe in the long run, the economy will correct itself. Who cares? We live in the short run. You, I, Keynes, we don't live over decades or hundreds of years. We live now in today. So what we do today, what we suffer, is important. So the short run is important. And then the next question, if we have something which is not good, a crisis or an economic boom, then the government has a duty to intervene. So for example, right now uh, in 2021, our economy is in a deep recession caused by this pandemic. So Keynes would argue that the government has a duty to go in and fix the economy. The central bank should print money and give money to people and businesses, and the government should cut taxes and boost spending. Keynes would say that if nobody spends, during a recession, nobody spends, people don't spend and the businesses don't spend, then someone has to start spending. Because if nobody spends the, the recession, the economic crisis will continue forever. So the government has a duty to start spending money. That's a case in economics. And for my course, that's enough for you to, to do well, to answer questions about the economic schools. But if you want to know more, I can say that in present day, world, we have neoclassical school and neo-Keynesian school. So present-day economists, they are more mild, they are less radical. For example, neoclassical economists would agree that yes, the government has a role to play, but neoclassical economists would be very skeptical of the government. They would say that yes, the government should do something, but a little bit and not too often. Neo-Keynesians would um, still argue that the government has a duty to intervene, but Neo-Keynesians would agree that, for example, public debt is bad, that uh, during a recession, yes, we should spend money and increase public debt, but once a recession is over, we should do our best to pay down the debt. So anyway, Neoclassical economic school and neo-Keynesian economic school are more mild. So today, the differences between these two schools are more uh, nuanced. That's my answer. Oh, thank you for a very complete answer. And yeah, Camilla, go ahead. 
Okay, thank you, Professor. That was an excellent history lesson. I love that so, so much. Um, I actually have a question that's related to the aggravated um, supply and demand model in relation to everything you've just talked about. So let's say we have a scenario, um, and this could very well be a question on a test, such as our country, Canada, is in a deep recession, and that is demonstrated on the um, model. Then what would be an example um, of how a curve will shift that correlates with the Keynesian School of Economics? Yes, excellent question. So first of all, Again, the ADAS model comes from two schools, which it's which makes it more difficult for students because they have to be more knowledgeable than economists themselves. But oh well, that's life. Anyway, classical economists would say that in the long run, the economy produces its potential output. But during the test, a student has to be classical and Keynesian. So Keynes would say that yes, there is a potential output. But today, for example, today, May 2021, the economy produces less than its potential output. So we need to make the intersection of the short-run supply and demand on the left of the potential output. So make sure that when a student draws a vertical long-run supply, then the student should indicate the economy on the left of the short or long run right? to show that the economy is in a recession. Now, again, what would John Maynard Keynes tell us today? He would say, we are in a recession. The compl- complications, uh, consequences of this recession are becoming long-term because businesses are falling apart. And people, some people, especially the most vulnerable, well, they are fighting for survival. So the government must do something. They must cut taxes, increase spending, launch public projects, and give money to people. Is it happening? Yes. Present-day governments in Canada, US, Europe, China, they are full-scale Keynesian governments. For example, in the US, they launched Uh, stimulus programs, $5 trillion. President Trump and President Biden launched three stimulus programs to the total of $5 trillion. It's more than the GDP of Canada. So the number is astronomical. Okay, how to show it on the graph? You show the economy on the left of potential output and then the stimulus program this massive fiscal policy will shift aggregate demand. Now, dear student, if you understand why, I am happy for you. If you don't, you can read the book. And even if you don't understand it, just memorize it. Fiscal policy shifts the aggregate demand, AD. And monetary policy shifts aggregate demand as well. So fiscal policy or monetary policy, they shift AD curve. If you understand it, wonderful. If you don't understand it, memorize it. So take AD and shift it to the right. AD goes up, which means people spend more, businesses spend more, and of course the government spends more. 
that will shift AD high to the right. So take AD curve and shift it to the right to restore the potential output. Uh, Camille, does that answer your question? Yes, Professor, that was awesome. Um, once again, thank you so much. Um, then my next question would be, in the same case scenario, so again, our country is in a recession, but how would we shift, um, how would we show this on the model, but using the classical school of economics, which curve should shift in that case? Oh, wow, okay. Uh, what I love about your question is you ask this question in a way that is unfamiliar to my students. So they will, <laughs> they will hear your question and they will think, what does it mean? So let me repeat what Camille asked. How, suppose the economy is in a recession, how, classic, how would classical economic school explain what happens? Good, okay, perfect. So economy is in a recession. Let's talk to a classical economist let's say, a 19th century economist, Adam Smith, that's 18th century, that doesn't matter, or David Ricardo or someone like that. He would say that this recession will be over at some point. Then we would say, okay, wonderful, how? What would fix an economy? Is the government? No, the classical economist would say, no, let's take the government out of the way. An economy is perfect as it is, and the government is just a bunch of corrupt bureaucrats. They're corrupt and also incompetent, and they couldn't care less about the economy. But anyway, a classical economist would say that the government is evil, so let's take the economy out of the question. So how would the economy heal itself, fix itself? One magical word. Wages. In the long run, wages fall. For example, right now, what's happening to wages in the States, Canada, or Europe? I hope they're falling, and at least they're falling in some industries. Maybe not across the board, but in many industries, they're falling, that's for sure. Now, when wages fall, is it good or bad? I mean, for some people, it's bad, but for some people, it's good. So, of course, falling wages, it's bad for workers, obviously. But let me ask you, let's say Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world, does he like, like it that wages are falling today? Yes, he's ecstatic. He's the richest person in the world and he will continue being the richest person in the world because he, as a head of Amazon, will pay low wages so he can get more stuff done for less. So people like Jeff Bezos, entrepreneurs, uh, businessmen, business ladies, executives, they are happy to see low wages because low wages mean high profits for businesses which means that businesses can hire more people, earn more profits, and produce more. Produce more. It means that they can increase aggregate supply. 
So take the short-run aggregate supply and increase it. Short-run aggregate supply, the SRAS curve will shift to the right. So the classical economics economist would take the SRAS curve and shift it to the right because of falling wages. And when the short-run aggregate supply increases, shifts to the right, the economy restores its potential output. So a classical economist would ask us today, are wages falling? If yes, good. If yes, it's a sign that the economy is recovering. If wages are not falling, and by the way, they are not falling in a couple of industries, for example, restaurants, when they are open in the States, wages are going up, up, up. So that would be a sad um, sign for a classical economist because uh, he wants to see falling wages and falling wages would fix an economy. That is my answer, Camille. Yes, thank you so much, Professor, for once again an awesome answer. Um, I will now pass it on to Henry, who probably has some really good questions as well. Yeah, uh, I actually have some questions to add on to what Camilla has said. So um, I wonder, uh, because uh, the model of aggregate demand and supply it's separated into three time periods. So how can the student make sure that uh, one shift in the aggregate demand it might shift only in the short run or the long run? And while the aggregate, uh, the short, I, I might be mistaken because I haven't studied this topic in a long time. Um, so what? So what can? How can the students ensure that they know? Uh, the SRAS will only shift in the long run and the very long run. Like, uh, because when I studied the topic it was very confusing as to what time period each curve will shift. So can, how can, you, uh, can you give us some uh, examples and instances to make sure that we remember uh, which, uh, which curve shifts in which period? Okay, which curve shifts that should be in which period? Okay, uh, in the test questions can be something happened to the economy and then the teacher will tell you what happened. For example, an earthquake, consumer pessimism, September 11 attack, terrorist attack, or technological breakthrough. So the that, that's the teacher's job. He will tell you what happens to the economy. Then you shift, you figure out which curve will be affected, supply demand, and you shift it. Uh, then think, then indicate the new position of the economy and think, okay, now the economy, is it in a recession or it's overheating? Things are bad or good? That's the first part of the answer. And then the teacher, and by the way, that is the short run. Because the teacher, let's say, tell you, September 11 happened, show how this event, will affect the U.S. economy. So you take AD because September 11, the terrorist attack will affect consumers, consumer pessimism, consumption. Consumption will fall, so AD will fall. And that's a short run because it happens immediately within a few weeks of the event. That's a short run. But then the teacher will ask you about the kind of a long run. He will ask you either, what should the government do? And then you use the Keynesian economic school, or the teacher will tell you, ask you, how will the economy fix itself 
without the government intervention. And that's a classical economic school. So by the way, teacher asks you, you should figure out which school is it. Again, Keynesian economic school, it's all about the government. And classical economic school is about self-correcting economy. And then you shift what happens if it's the Keynesian economic school, the government intervenes and that shifts AD, aggregate demand. If it's a classical economic school, it's about the self-correcting economy. It's about wages and wages always shift short-run aggregate supply. Uh, that's it. Yeah, I think that's that, yeah, that was a very good answer as always. Uh, yeah, I, I think then we can also move on to some more theoretical questions regarding why uh, the aggregate demand or aggregate supply is downward sloping or upward sloping. Because I think that's a bit a bit of a uh, area of confusion for students because it doesn't seem to make sense why a curve might be upward sloping when it's indicated the whole supply power of the economy. Yes, uh, yes. Um, this question is confusing because in the official textbook by Mencken, economic advisor to George W. Bush, probably it's a good thing. I don't know. Anyway, he or any other textbook, they explain, they talk a lot on this topic and they don't say much. They use interest rates and investments and very complicated uh, economic theories to explain why the short-run supply goes up and the long-run supply doesn't. Uh, that's why I wrote my own textbook. And in my own textbook, I use only one explanation because I believe it's enough. And by the way, this explanation is very Keynesian. John Maynard Keynes would agree with me wholeheartedly. So the answer is this, sticky wages. What does it mean? In today's conversation, we discussed wages a few times. Remember when I asked you, so when wages fall, is it good or bad, and so on. But in the real life, wages are often sticky. Yes, they fall sometimes. Yes, they go up sometimes. But companies are often reluctant to change wages or people are reluctant to accept low wages. For example, most workers have contracts. Let's say you, students, in about uh, six years, you will finish your university education, you'll be looking for a job, you will get a job in a corporation, probably, and the company will offer you a wage. That salary, that wage will be in your contract. And now the company has to maintain that wage for at least, I don't know, a year. So that wage will stay at that level no matter what. So wage will be sticky. Maybe the company wants to increase your wage. It might, but they don't want to actually, right? Because it's a labor cost for them. Uh, but if they want to decrease your wage, you will be against it. You will say, you can't do this. You have... We have a contract. If you reduce my wage, I'll call my lawyer or the union. So wages are often sticky. And that's why these wages, that the fact that wages often don't respond to the economy, uh, not immediately. 
That explains why we have two supply curves, long run supply and short run supply. Now, long run supply. Now, in the long run, wages are flexible. They are not sticky because if you take 10 years, 20 years, a million years, of course, wages will adjust because eventually people will demand high wages and they'll get them. Or companies will lay off people, they cancel contracts, they will change lower wages. So eventually it will happen. So in the long run, wages don't affect our GDP. In the long run, let's say, take Canada over the past 50 years. Wages were going up or down, but the Canadian potential output, our long-run GDP, is pretty much the same, about um, $2 trillion US dollars. So that's why long-run supply is fixed. It's a vertical line when prices don't affect the GDP in the long run. Wages don't affect the GDP in the long run because in the long run, wages do adjust. But in the short run, let's say, take the year 2020, many people had contracts, so wages did not adjust. They didn't respond immediately to this recession. To change wages, corporations have to fire people or start negotiations with the union unions or start just uh, start legal battles with people, with workers. And that takes time, laying off people, negotiations with the unions or legal battles. It takes time, it takes months at least. So while companies are fighting workers, while companies are trying to reduce wages and workers resist that, short-run supply, it's not a vertical line because wages in this case will affect the supply. So now, if wages are sticky, then the higher prices, uh, so imagine wages are sticky, so wages don't change in the short run. That's what Keynes would say. And then imagine that prices go up. Is it good news for businesses? Yes. Businesses will be happy to see higher prices. The higher the price, the more sellers will sell. And other way around. If prices fall, the less sellers will sell. So it's an upward sloping relationship. Prices go up and sellers sell more. Prices fall, sellers sell less. Assuming constant wages. That's why the short run supply is um, upward sloping. Because we assume that wages are sticky. They don't change in the short run. But in the long run, uh, wages do adjust. After a certain time, of, uh, certain period of time, wages adjust. They go up and down. They adjust to the economy, which means that our supply doesn't af- is not affected by wages. And that's why the long run supply is just a vertical line, line fixed at the potential output. Does this make it uh, less uh, confusing, Henry? Yes, that does make it less confusing. Thank you. Um, Camila, do you have any questions? Um, no, but um, other than that, I think we might want to move on to the next topic that's going to be on the exam since we've discovered 
um, or discuss this topic quite a bit. What do you think, Henry? Yeah, I think we can move on to uh, monetary policy. Perfect. So, um, Professor, what could we say about monetary policy in general? It's a policy of a central bank, how the central bank in Canada, the Bank of Canada, influences the money supply to influence prices and uh, GDP, to influence inflation and economic activity. Uh, That's a short answer. Long answer will take us uh, many hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In that case, may I ask what might be some test questions we might see with regards to this topic? Well, I can't say specifically, but I can say that uh, money creation and tools of monetary policy, a student is supposed to know tools of monetary policy. In my course, I discuss two tools, open market operations and the bank rate. In the real life, in other economic courses, uh, we have four or even more tools. So students probably need to learn those. But in my course, just two, the bank rate and the open market operations. Uh, That's how the central bank does something to increase or decrease money supply. And by the way, uh, Henry asked uh, uh, me a few minutes ago about neoclassical economists and neo-Keynesian economists. I can say that neoclassical economists favor monetary policy. They love the central bank intervening in the economy. And neo-Keynesian economists are very skeptical. They think that the central bank is irrelevant and uh, it's not a central bank, but the government who should do more to fix the economy. And who is correct? Who knows? Today, we use all, all of that. Fiscal policy and monetary policy. Keynesian, neo-Keynesian, classical, neoclassical tools. Yes. And uh, also for a test, I would advise to... Uh, pay attention at money creation. For example, if the central bank changes the key lending rate, how will it affect the money supply and why? A student is supposed to discuss it in detail. It's very boring and technical, but it's important for monetary policy. Okay, then I guess adding on a bit to what uh, Camila has said, and also regarding monetary policies in general, so, for instance, if uh, the bank rate, uh, let's say, goes up, um, how would that affect the money supply and why does it affect the money supply? Okay, uh, money supply will fall because the borrowing from the central bank will become cheap, uh, sorry, more expensive. So the banks will not want to borrow money from uh, the central bank and they will cut the reserve. Sorry. Oh, okay. I am too tired. I make making a mistake again. Okay, uh, let me discuss this. For example, in 2018, I believe, in the, in the US, the Federal Reserve Bank increased the key lending rate called the federal funds uh, rate. And the president, Donald Trump, was furious. He was against this action. So now why? And who was correct? the Federal Reserve Bank or the President. At that time, 2018, the U.S. economy was most likely overheating. 
the economy was very good, booming. The GDP was going up, high economic activity. Actually, it was the best time in US history in the past 50 years, at least. And then the pandemic happened and everything is ruined. Anyway, so at that time when the economic situation was good, the Federal Reserve decided that there was a danger of inflation. And yes, during overheating, during a booming economy, prices often go up. So to reduce inflation, the central bank decided to do this. They increased the key lending rate. In the States, it's called the federal funds rate. In Canada, it's overnight rate. But in your textbook, it's the bank rate. What does it mean? It means that money is now expensive. Yes, money has a price, believe it or not. For banks, money has a price. For banks, borrowing become became more expensive. So if borrowing is more expensive than banks, American bank, banks did not want to borrow. But how not to borrow? You can only avoid borrowing if you have money. So banks wanted to have cash. How can they have more cash? Banks would reserve more out of each deposit they would reserve more money. For example, right now, the reserve ratio in the States is about 10%. But in this case, banks would probably reserve not 10%, but 12, 15, 20, so that when a bank needs money, it will have money. Now, banks increase the reserve ratio, so they reserve more, which means they lend less. And money creation is lending. If banks lend less, banks create less money. Money supply falls. Money supply falls, which means less money for the economy, prices fall. That's what the Federal Reserve wanted to see. They wanted to decrease prices, decrease prices, and to decrease the GDP. And that's why the president was angry, because he wanted economic boom to continue. He wanted the U.S. economy grow, but the Federal Reserve Bank wanted the, the economy to slow down. And in that particular case, the Federal Reserve was right, and the president was probably wrong. Okay, that was a long answer to your question. I hope it helped. Coming back to what uh, Professor Shakov has said, uh, on the U.S. Um, uh, president and the Federal Reserve, um, how? So, for instance, what might be a test question that would look like um, regarding monetary policy? For instance, the, there be any that type of question on the test, and whether or not, uh, because I come from a different teacher, so I don't know whether for your class or for other classes in macroeconomics, do they have to know how to draw the uh, the money market diagram? Oh, uh, Henry, who was your teacher? Uh, I had I had uh, Professor Companiet. Ah, okay, 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 okay. Um, I would say yes. The questions, exam questions, can be let's say an economy is in a recession. What can the government do to fix the economy? Suggest a specific tool. What the central bank can do? Uh, 
what can central bank do to fix the economy? Suggest a specific tool. And yes, show it on the graph. Show it on the ADAS graph. Or the economy is overheating, there's a danger of high inflation. What can the central bank do about that? What can the government do about that? And again, show it on the graph. As for the money supply, money demand graph, in my course, I didn't use it. Other teachers might have used uh, this um, MDMS model, uh, money supply, money demand. In my uh, in my course, no, I think uh, I skipped this topic. So for my course, my students uh, should know uh, ADAS model, ADAS graph, and that is enough. Uh, and the savings and investments, the market for loanable funds, those two graphs, enough for my final exam. Perfect, understood. Um, and yeah, I can go ahead. Yes, um, I, I noticed that we also have the money supply formula um, to study for. And so could you give us a breakdown of what that formula entails? No, no. Okay, that formula, we spend the whole class proving that formula. And the proof includes the geometric series and everybody hates it, which makes me sad because geometric series is beautiful and calculus is beautiful. But students, some students at least, don't like it. Anyway, um, I mean, it's very technical and I cannot do calculus right now, right uh, over uh, the audio. And even if I do, it will be boring. But the formula is simple. Minus supply equals X times one over V. And X is a deposit, one, one, a number, and V is a reserve ratio. So the formula is very simple. And I just want to repeat, uh, tell my students that the formula is simple. So you need to learn, understand how this formula works, how it came about and use it. And ideas are difficult, but mathematics is simple. So those students who say, oh, I'm not good in math. Again, the formula is so simple, X times one divided by V. You can't get any simpler than that. So math is simple. Uh, ideas, yes, they are more difficult. So you need to think about what is the deposit X, uh, what is the reserve ratio. But once you do it, it's very easy to use this formula money supply equals X times one over V. And uh, mistakes in such questions are often so silly when people forget to divide by V or they confuse one over V, they forget it's a division. They confuse the multiplication. So very silly mistakes. So I would recommend students to take time, be careful, stay calm, because the exam is not long and the formulas are simple. And again, you don't have to memorize this formula. Well, you should, but if you have a short memory span, write it down and it will be in front of you. Camila? Yes, that answers my question. Thank you so much, Professor. Yeah, then that's it really for monetary policy. Is uh, the topic of inflation on the exam too? Yes. Okay, then I guess we can move on to uh, inflation. So, inflation, oh, that's a topic I remember the least. Um, 
Yeah, you're not alone, Henry. <laughs> so I guess we can. Oh, I don't know if this was、uh, talk about your class, professor, but as if there was unexpected high inflation or there was、um, inflation lower than expected or deflation. Yes, high unanticipated inflation. So, high unanticipated inflation redistributes wealth. There are there are winners and losers. Why? Because, let's say you take a loan, loan from a bank. You expect a certain inflation, and the bank as well. So, let's say the bank assumes inflation will be two percent, and the bank wants to make money. So the bank, of course, wants to make more than two percent, because after one year, money will be two percent less valuable. So the bank, the lender, wants to make up for that. So they will want to charge you two percent or more. Let's say they charge you five percent, and let's say something happened and there's high, high inflation. Let's say ten percent. Will the bank earn money? No. They wanted to earn money. They thought that they would charge you five percent, out of which two will go to cover inflation, and three will be pure profit, interest income. But if inflation is high, let's say ten percent, and the bank charged you five, that means five minus ten equals minus five. The bank is going to lose five percent. They will get a loss on this loan. So if inflation is not as expected, there will be winners and losers. If it's a high inflation, borrowers will benefit and lenders will lose. And that's why in the real life, every time there's high inflation, banks stop lending. They freeze all lending operations because they are not sure what kind of inflation will be in the future. So banks don't want to gamble. They stop all long-term lending operations, which means the economy goes out the window. So it's a very bad situation. For example, for、uh, the economy of Venezuela today, high inflation becomes self-sustained and it kills economic growth. And you ask it about deflation.、Uh, that's a different situation. For example, in Japan, prices are falling. Which means it's a very strange situation, at least for us. We are not very used to deflation. But if you live in Japan, you have a very strange situation when you keep money, keep cash, and this cash becomes more and more valuable because prices fall. So if you keep a hundred、uh, yen banknote at your home, every year this one hundred. Yen banknote can buy more and more and more because prices are falling, which means that many businesses are going bankrupt because prices are falling. Businesses cannot cover their costs, their expenses, and they go bankrupt. And that's why the economic crisis in Japan has been going on for twenty, thirty years. With no hope inside. On this depressing note, did I answer your question? Yes, actually,、uh, it did. Th- thank you. And、um, on the same topic as inflation and、um, GDP, especially since we're talking about Japan,、uh, 
Uh, I wonder for your course, do we have to learn uh, the consumer price index and uh, its difference from uh, the GDP deflator? Yes, definitely. And uh, then can you explain some differences between the consumer price index and the GDP deflator? Because uh, I think some of my classmates, when they first learned the topic, they were a bit confused as to, oh, why is this thing calculated in terms of CPI, but not in the GDP deflator? Or why is this only in the GDP deflator, but not in the CPI? Okay, um, those students should check the definition, right? So we do have many inflation rates. In this course, we cover two inflation rates, CPI-based inflation and GDP-based inflation. And now go back to the definition. What is the CPI? What is the GDP? For the, uh, inflation rates measure prices, changes in prices. So CPI-based inflation measures prices, but what prices? It's in the name, CPI. C stands for consumer. So it change, it measures prices for consumer goods. Cookies, bananas, potatoes, coffee, chocolate. Have I mentioned bananas? I think yes. So anything consumers buy, that's in the CPI, in the CPI-based inflation. Let's take something with what is not in, uh, what consumers don't buy. Tanks, spaceships, artillery, uh, road. When was the last time you, a consumer, you, a student, bought a good piece of a road? Never. So such uh, items will not affect the CPI because consumers don't buy tanks or roads or spaceships. But if this spaceship was produced in Canada, it's a part of our GDP. Therefore, the price of a spaceship will be in the GDP-based inflation. If Bombardier produced fighter jets for the Canadian military, consumers don't buy fighter jets, but such fighter jets are in the Canadian GDP because we did produce those planes and the Canadian army bought it. So the price of a jet will be in the GDP based inflation. Yeah, I think that answers the question very well. Thank you. Um, yes. And yeah, I guess that's it for most of the topics. And uh, Camila, do you have any questions? I was going to ask what you just asked. So good job, Henry. And thank you, Professor, for your um, explanation. I think we covered... Do we cover everything? I'm not too sure. Um, Professor, yeah. do we cover everything? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's impossible to cover everything. I just want to say that um, students, uh, when you study for an exam, I would suggest uh, creating a list of formulas. And by the way, you have an advantage. Right now, during the pandemic, when the human civilization comes crashing down, and people falling sick and dead left and right. But you have an advantage because you can use books and notes. So create a list of formulas and graphs, everything you think is important. In normal times, you cannot bring such a list, cheat sheet, to the test, to the final exam room. But you can. It's a Zoom, right? So you can do whatever you want. Use this advantage. Create a list of everything important in this course. It should take you one page, two pages. And when you take 
questions, when you answer questions, when you take an exam, have that list in front of you. It's like the entire course will be in front of you and answer questions by using those lists. Online education is boring. Zoom classes suck. But there is an advantage. You can use your cheat sheets. You can use wherever you prepare for the final exam. Use this advantage. In my classes, I can see that good students, they do well, not just well. They get 100%, 99%. So for good students, students who study, it's much easier to get a high grade because you don't have to keep everything in your mind. You can put something on paper, have it in front of you. It's legal <laughs> because we can't forbid it, right? Even if we do, you ignore it. So it's all good. <laughs> so yeah, use this advantage. There is something good in Zoom classes. And my another advice is uh, uh, I recorded videos. Again, videos, it's not the best way of teaching or learning, but there is a good, there's an advantage in videos. You can pause a video. Or if you didn't understand a certain part, you can watch it again and again and again until you understand. So use that. Let's say ADAS graph is a tough topic. Yes, very tough. Because it includes all chapters that we studied before. That's tough. But I recorded four videos about this topic in which I just solve exercises. It's boring. It's technical. But you will see such questions on a final exam. So watch those videos. If you don't understand, watch them again and copy everything I do solve exercises yourself. Again, uh, online education is its not the best, but there are some advantages to take home online exams, to online classes, videos. Use this advantage. That's my uh, five cents, two cents. That's my advice, Henry. Uh, yeah, um, and before just adding on to what Professor Chekhov uh, has said, which uh, thank you, Professor Chekhov, for those study advice. And I also want to mention that uh, I think personally for my own teacher, like we didn't, we weren't allowed a cheat sheet. At least he didn't say so. So I just want to uh, warn the student: be, be sure to check your teachers to make sure that you are using the authorized material and not getting a zero on the final exam, which not be fun for uh, your summer and uh, your later school years. Uh, and with that, I think we should finish off the review session. It's been wonderful having you here, Professor Chekhov. Um, thank you again for coming today and joining us um, for this review session. Um, and that's it. Thank you, Camila. Thank you, Henry. Good luck with your final exams. Bye. Bye. <laughs>